this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is one of India's best-known writers. Born in Mumbai, he spent many of his early years engrossed in literature and dreaming of becoming an author. As an adult, however, dreams gave way to reality and he became entangled in the world of finance. For 14 years, he worked as a marketing and product manager at multiple firms, including Standard Chartered and IDBI Federal Life Insurance. In the last 13 years, he changed direction to realign with his passion of writing, winning multiple awards for his books, largely based on Indian spirituality. He's also the head of the Indian Cultural Institution in London, the Nehru Centre. Amish Tripathi, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you. Pleasure being here. Amish, people just call you. You're just known as Amish. Why Mm. just the one name? On the cover of my books, my legal name is Amish Tripathi. I mean, uh, so that's what my driving license and my passport says. But uh, my surname, as some surnames in India tend to uh, signify, my surname signifies the caste that I uh, was born into. I am against the caste system the way it exists uh, today. And in fact, our ancient scriptures are not casteist at all. It it emerged only in the last uh, you know millennia. So I thought I'd just make one small statement. I speak against the caste system in my books and through the stories that I write. And I thought I'll make a small statement on the cover of my books. I will not use my surname. So don't judge me from where I was born. Judge me for what I do. And what caste does that name indicate? Uh, it indicates Brahmin. Yeah. Yeah, so there are there are four. Uh, it's it's complicated because actually in the Indian way the varna jati system actually does not exactly compute into how the West uh, understands the caste system, but how the West understands the caste system is that there are four castes: Brahmins, Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, and Shudras. And the Brahmins were the uh, the teachers, priests, etc. Uh, Kshatriyas were the warriors, rulers, uh, Vaishyas were businessmen, traders and Shudras were the workers or artists or things like that. That's how uh, the West understands it. In India, it's actually far, far, far more complicated. Your grandfather was a pandit and a teacher. Tell us a little bit more about your family background. Oh, he was a a lovely man. You know, he was uh, a pandit at Vishwanath Temple in Varanasi. Varanasi is the holy town. So those of you who've come to India, I'm sure you'd have uh, been out there. It is perhaps the oldest living city anywhere in the world, actually. So you can find temples or rituals that go back thousands of years out there. And my grandfather was was a priest at a temple there and he was also a teacher at the Banaras Hindu University. He was uh, born in a very humble uh, background. He'd lost his mother when he was born. He lost his uh, father, I think, when he was a teenager. And the founder of the university used to run this uh, program, this charity program for uh, talented uh, children. And among the students who benefited from that charity program was my grandfather. So, which is why for us in our family, the founder of that university is almost like a god because our entire family's future, our entire family changed, you know, its position thanks to that charity program. And my grandfather was, you know, he did a master's in Sanskrit, master's in mathematics. He used to teach mathematics and physics. He uh, didn't know English. He, uh, he knew a little bit of it, but I mean, he thought it's a rather unscientific language, whatever, uh, <laughs> whatever he whatever he learned uh, of it. He primarily knew Hindi and uh, Sanskrit. And his belief was that knowledge is the answer to everything. So he taught, you know, he had eight children. 
educated all of them five of them were uh, were girls in those days daughters weren't educated sadly my oldest uh, aunt she is 94 she became a medical doctor in her entire five years of medical college she was the only woman and i'm talking about like the 1920s or 30s or something right he was deeply liberal because he said that this is what our actual ancient scriptures say he said that you don't have to be uh, you know he would use the hindi term pashchimikaran he said you don't have to be westernized to be liberal in fact you have to be truly indian to be liberal and our ancient scriptures are actually deeply liberal and he's been very influential in my life and that's what shows uh, in my books because so, so i speak against the caste system using our own scriptures mm-hmm. i speak of women's rights using our own scriptures i have characters and in, in one of my books uh, legend of suheldev i have two gay characters uh, they are they are warriors right they just happen to love each other and we had deeply liberal attitudes in ancient india towards lgbtis towards women we lost it in the last few centuries perhaps because of the invasions but we've been an independent country for the last 75 years we need to revive our ancient way You grew up within your family. We've got a twin brother and I'm very interested about that and how it fosters or indeed restricts independent growth. <laughs> Good question. He's 12 minutes elder to me. I've seen with twins either they love each other deeply or they hate each other. Can't stand the sight of each other. There's no middle ground. And my twin brother and I fortunately we deeply love each other. We always joke we've known each other since one cell. Uh, <laughs> since we were one cell. and i can almost complete his thoughts and of course we we pull pranks on uh, on others saying that i can hear his thoughts and if you pinch him i'll feel it is <laughs> of course nonsense are you identical <laughs> no we are not actually we are fraternal twins so we look like brothers but we are not uh, we don't look identical he is tall dark handsome so <laughs> doesn't, doesn't look like me but you know this thing of independence there's a value in independence i don't deny that there's a value in individualism There's a lot of strength that also comes from strong bonds and relationships. There's a lot of value in dependence as well. You know, uh, I've had a difficult our entire family difficult 7-8 years in our personal lives. Lots of uh, tragedies one after the other. We lost people some way tragically. Part of the reason for coming to London I just I couldn't handle being in Mumbai anymore. I just want to get out. India is not a great place to be if you're going through loads of personal troubles and you're in the public space and i should um, stress to to our audience that you hmm. are extremely well known in india uh, so the good part about having strong bonds right our family i have an eldest sister and i have two brothers and uh, the respective spouses my my eldest sister is a widow all of us we are very close and you know when you go through so much shit in your life You know this thing that psychologists will help you all that it's all nonsense man. You know what what I've come to learn if you have strong bonds family and very few close friends you know the people who you'll die for without a second thought and who will die for you without a second thought that's all that you need yeah. You're there for each other you get through stuff. So so the point that you were making about does it hurt independence if you're very close? Yes, but there's a value to that dependence as well. Let's not lose that too, mm. right? So if we can find a balance between dependence and independence, it becomes a better life. Now you and your twin brother both went into the corporate world. Well, he still inhabits, but of course mm. you are now a writer. How did you make that switch from being a man in a suit mm. to what you do now? 
Yeah, regrettably, the suit has come back since I'm also a diplomat now. <laughs> <laughs> I've had four careers actually in one life. So I was, yes, I was a banker. I was a banker for 14 years. My last job was in a life insurance company. I was a part of the senior management committee and Woody Allen, a brilliant director, had said there are things worse than death. Have you ever spent an evening with a life insurance guy? <laughs> that, that was the world I was in. It was brain numbing, but it paid well. I wrote my first two books along with my job. And I, I'd love to sound, you know, exciting and sexy that, look, I kicked my boss and just followed my heart. No, it wasn't like that. It was actually a very pragmatic decision to leave my job. I resigned only after my second book when my royalty check became more than my salary. Like I said, I come from a humble background. So we don't, in India, there's no social security system or anything. You have to look out for yourself. So uh, it was a very pragmatic uh, decision. I, for five, six years, I was working at my job and writing and promoting my books. So yeah, so seven days a week, 14 hour days. I resigned only after my second book. Very boring, very pragmatic. Yeah. What were your first Sorry books? Sorry if that doesn't sound exciting. <laughs> <laughs> tell, us, tell us about your first books and what inspired them. So my first series is, it's, the, it's called the Shiva Trilogy. Three books, Immortals of Meluha, Secret of the Nagas, Oath of the Vaiputras. It began as, as a pure philosophical thesis actually. An exploration into this question, what is evil? And I, uh, my family and I were watching a TV program, ironically. And then that kind of triggered some, some thoughts in my mind. I told my family uh, this philosophy. They said, it's nice. Why don't you write it down? So it actually began as a pure philosophy thesis. And then, uh, which slowly got converted into a story. The idea being that, can one write an engaging story, an adventure, and convey philosophies uh, through that? That's what I tried to do. Immortals of Meluha is the first piece of fiction I've ever written in my life, my first book. I'd written nothing before that. No, Not even a short story in school, nothing. In fact, most of my school, college friends still refuse to believe that I have actually written my books because I had shown no uh, <laughs> no creative skills <laughs> when I was young. I was I was kind of academically oriented. I was, I was good at studies and I was very active in sports, boxing, gymnastics. At competitive levels, I'd done that. I have a slightly crooked nose. Uh, it's an old boxing injury. But I was never creative. I had never written anything. The only kind of creative thing I'd done was I was the lead singer of our band in I Am Calcutta. I used to sing both English and Hindi uh, music, but I never wrote the music. I would, you know, I would sing what others uh, composed. So essentially, I was never creative. Yeah, so Immortals of Melua, I wrote down. I think I was as stunned as everyone else that a story <laughs> had come to me. <laughs> and I'm even more stunned that it took off. <laughs> uh, and I mean, it really did take off. Now, these were all written in Hindi. No, actually, it was written in English. I'm completely comfortable in English and Hindi. Most educated Indians tend to be at the minimum bilingual, usually three languages, actually, usually trilingual or even more, but at the minimum bilingual. I'm completely comfortable in English and Hindi. And I know three other languages as well. I can broadly understand. Mm. But so they were published in, in English? They were published in English. Now they've been translated into some 20 languages. And ironically, in India, in the publishing industry in India, English gets uh, more sales. In every other creative industry in uh, in India, it's the Indian languages which get more sales. So in TV, movies, etc. But in publishing, people like to read English, interestingly. Let's talk about the success of these books because we keep alluding to the fact that they took off. But how many million sales is it now? So it's around six and a half million copies till now. From what I've been told by my publisher, apparently the Shiva trilogy is... The fastest selling uh, ever and the Ramchandra series, my second series, is the second fastest selling ever. 
So I'm I'm just lucky. I mean, <laughs> thank you. Your books are based really on on Indian spirituality. You're retelling. Yeah. Yeah. You're retelling the, the old the traditional stories. stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but look, it's written in a way that anyone can understand it. My books are for the first time have actually been launched. The Ramchandra series has actually been launched in the UK. The Shiva trilogy has also been launched. It's been published here. I'm doing a book tour out here. So there are. I'm really happy that part of this block tour, there are uh, Westerners reading uh, the book, and they obviously don't know. The only thing they know about the Ramayana is that it led to Diwali. It led to uh, to what uh, the the greeting of Happy Diwali. Mm. But I write it in a way that anyone can understand it. I have reinterpreted the traditional story, so I don't follow the 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 traditional way, but I communicate them in my own mm. way, and uh, you one can read it as an adventure. So it's not. It's not pure philosophy. The idea being that while reading an adventure, you will learn some of the philosophies that animate and have animated Indians for thousands of years, mm. and hopefully, value in that for you as well. Because I mean, what 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 I think you've you've really captured here is these almost kind of fantasy stories that people love—the struggle between good and evil. I mean, mm. for instance, about War of Lanka, the kind of strapline is Lanka will burn, darkness will perish, mm. but can light endure? Mm. And you can just see that this is going to be <laughs> this wonderful adventure. It is written in that way, and you know, and, and the thing in the Indian way—we are the oldest pagan culture. Right, we are the only among the few pagan cultures that are still alive in a way. The only pre-Bronze Age culture that is still alive. Imagine if the worshippers of Apollo and Zeus were still around, and Apollo and Zeus were young gods uh, for uh, for Indians. So we have hymns that were composed eight thousand, nine thousand years ago. We still chant them to this day, mm. right? In that ancient way, there is no simplistic black and white, good and evil. Everything has shades of grey. There's something to be learned from the quote-unquote villain as well, mm. and there are areas of improvements in the quote-unquote uh, among the gods and goddesses as well, and the stories are written from that perspective. But at the surface level, they are adventures, right? You can can really enjoy, uh, get lost in them. Uh, there's war, there's drama, there's love, there's grief, there's tragedy. So you can enjoy all that, but through that, you learn some deeper philosophies. Mm. Your website, India's first literary pop star. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Shekhar Kapoor called me that. <laughs> but what is it like? Because, it, as you say, you moved to London because actually living with that level of public scrutiny can be a real problem. Look, I'm a I'm a private guy. Regrettably, my work is such that I'm forced to be a little more public. But outside of my books, actually, I stay away from the media. I don't talk about my personal life. My son, he's 14 years old. Photos of his don't get published anywhere. And in my family, there were two of us who were kind of in the public space. My brother-in-law was also a very, very big cop. My my late brother-in-law. And we are essentially a private family. Fame can be a problem at times, but but I I'm also of the view that there are some authors who kind of don't do their what I would call their job for their publisher, right? You can't say that the publisher should make losses because you know I'm going to sit in my home and not going to do what needs to be done to promote that book. That's in my opinion, that's wrong, man. Mm. You know why should the publisher make losses? So at least around the book launch times, I must be more visible. 
I have to do my work. I have to go around promoting the book. That's the least that I can do. But what I notice about your work is that you've got basically a very, very slick marketing campaign. Ah. You do videos, you do social media, you're yeah. absolutely out there. Yeah. And clearly it pays off. I mean, is that is that work that, that you have to do yourself or can you contract that out? Fortunately, there's a team because I suck at uh, social media. In fact, in my previous book launch, my... my uh, my publisher and my social media team were after me to get more because Instagram has become much more important now mm. in India. You know, so I had to post stories. I had no idea how to post stories, right? So they actually made training videos for me. <laughs> <laughs> and then they wanted to get me on Snapchat and TikTok and I drew the line. I said, I'm doing nothing more. It's like Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. That's it. And usually it's done by my team. It's a very good team. Yeah, I'm lucky, I guess. I have a damn good team, good publisher. Yeah. How many books have you actually published so far? Ten. So there are eight fiction to non-fiction. And in terms of the team, how much of that, how, how much help do you get from those around you with all of that work? Because it's huge. It's hugely prolific. As you yeah. say, you've got this day job too. <laughs> yeah. So writing is all done by me. But on the promotion and marketing side, yeah, of course, there's a there's a fantastic team which works on it. I love writing because, I mean, for me, it's like a... It's almost like a spiritual experience. I get to enter this parallel universe which no one else gets to see. And I get to record uh, what I see out there. So I love it. I love writing. Uh, the reason I've written... So, and my books are relatively long. I mean, mm. it, it's, it's a, been told it's a quick read, but they're relatively long. They're 400, 500 pages. You can't be so prolific if it's hard work for you. You should just enjoy it, right? Mm. Uh, mm. And that's what I do. I, I genuinely enjoy what I do. You're right, I have another job. I have two other jobs on the side, actually. So I'm also a, a diplomat for the government, uh, government of India. I uh, work as Minister Culture and Education at the High Commission of India in the UK. But I'm not a foreign service guy. I'm just, I'm here on contract. I will leave this job sometime. And you're head of the and Nehru Centre. Tell us yes, a bit about that. Yes, a part of that. So the Nehru Centre is the Indian equivalent of the British Council. And we have our own building on South Audley Street. We have an auditorium. We have an art gallery. We have nearly 200 events per year. It's extremely active. So you must come. It's on South Audley Street in the heart of, of Mayfair. You know, among the among the things I was told when, you know, when I was uh, offered this job was that uh, the Nehru Center, which had a fantastic, you know, legacy, was becoming a bit like a ghetto. Essentially, Indians talking to Indians. And which is not what a cultural center should be. It should be a cultural outpost. It should be more multicultural. So I was told to do that. I'm very happy we managed to succeed in that in, in a significant measure, both on stage and in the audience. We have many more non-Indians out there. It's much more multicultural. I'm happy about that. And mm. a cultural outpost should be about engagement. Yeah. And I know that you do a huge amount of events every year. Mm. Uh, you're always sending out exactly <laughs> what's uh, my WhatsApp things like, oh, it's, it's Amish again. <laughs> but it's always so interesting, the, the type of thing that, that you're Thank investigating. You. Thank you. Is there a big cultural Indian community here in London? There is, because, uh, you know, the Indian community is quite big out here, 1.5, 1.6 million. It's a very successful community, among the wealthiest communities in uh, in the UK. Actually, Indians tend to be among the wealthiest communities in most parts of the world, in the US, in the Caribbean, most, most places, in the UAE. And also, it tends to be seen that the Indian community, the prison population percentage is actually quite low compared to their proportion of population. They educationally... You know, they tend to be much more, you know, they tend to be outperforming. But culturally, they tend to kind of keep to themselves. 
in most countries. It's only now, I guess, slowly we are kind of emerging and talking about our culture to others, uh, others as well. So uh, I don't know if that was because Indians were completely focused as uh, as a community, completely focused on work and individual advancement, or if there was perhaps maybe just a lack of confidence, maybe you know that we were kind of we'll just stick to ourselves, we'll just work and keep our head down. So I don't know if that was the background because I'm I'm not a I'm not a you know foreign Indian. I'm an Indian Indian. Mm. But what I see happening over the last few years is across many countries, Indians are uh, becoming more and more visible. People of Indian heritage are becoming more and more visible. Perhaps like there's a new generation that's emerged, and we talk about our uh, culture. But uh, among the things that I like about the Indian community in many parts of the world is there is uh, respect for the native cultures of the countries that they are in as well as as we should mm. yeah. so is there a big difference then between indian indians and foreign indians as you call them in some ways yes you know uh, because uh, there was a time when foreign indians were significantly wealthier than india because india was a dirt poor country right till 35 40 uh, years ago i mean 35 40 years ago india's entire gdp was smaller than the gross sales turnover of general motors and ford motors combined we were that poor today we are the fifth largest economy in the world in just 30 years we just moved ahead of due to politeness i will not i will not say which country we just crossed <laughs> to become the fifth largest economy by the pace we are growing we'll be the fourth largest within 2 years third largest within another 3 4 years so that has changed how Indian Indians also see themselves, right? Because we've become much more wealthier. Like within the families, for example, the foreign return cousins aren't necessarily the wealthiest anymore. And yes, the Indians abroad, you know, have uh, rightly been influenced by whichever country that they're in. Whereas Indian Indians, there have been some, you know, updations in our culture over the last few decades. But the bond is still extremely strong. British Indians or American uh, US Indians can actually come to India and immediately feel at home the same with us when we come out here and see uh, go to indian communities out here so the bonds are very strong we are cousins now tell me the story of lanka all right so everyone has heard of the diwali i assume your uh, i'm sure all your listeners wish happy diwali the festival of lights victory of good over evil this is the story which led to the first diwali so there are three principal characters. There's Lord Ram, who's worshipped as a god in India, goddess Sita, his wife, and Ravan, who's the quote-unquote villain. In simple terms, essentially, uh, Ravan kidnaps uh, goddess Sita, and Lord Ram fights a war to save her. And so War of Lanka is essentially the story of that war. So it's a fourth of, of a series. And it's my interpretation. So obviously, Ravan is also shown as a nuanced character. Goddess Sita is not how we have come to see her in the relatively recent past as docile and submissive. She's actually a warrior. She's a tough woman, as she was in the ancient versions of the Ramayana. So uh, the book dedicated to her is called Sita, Warrior of Mithila. And it's an adventure. You will, of course, enjoy it. It, it starts with, I mean, most Indians have enjoyed it. I hope you'll enjoy it too. And it starts with, with the kidnapping of Goddess Sita and how Lord Ram puts together an army to invade the island of Lanka and free his wife. So it's this wonderful adventure, isn't it? It is a complete adventure. There's massive battles and strategies and love and grief. And Ravan is a very complex and dark character. And of course, it ends with a duel between Lord Ram and Ravan. 
Now, what's unusual about this book, given that it's your 10th, is that, in fact, it's actually published here in Britain. Mm. Yeah, it is. Before this, your books have been published in India. Yeah, so my books would be uh, imported into other countries because Indians out here would, would ask for it. But this has been published here. HarperCollins has done it. I am uh, delighted that the book has actually started off quite well out here. And I'd be even more delighted to see non-Indians check it out. And mm. and to the non-Indians among you, I can tell you, you can read it as an adventure. It, you don't really need to know the ancient stories to understand this story. It's been written in that manner. And a lot of your books are in series. Mm. Why that and not just sort of standalone books? And can you read them just on their own without reading the rest of the series? It's just, you know, what happens is the stories that come in my mind are too long, right? Often. And you can't release a 2,000-page book. That's a human rights violation. <laughs> so so you kind of divide it into a, into a few books. There are some books of mine which are purely individual books. So there's Legend of Suhail Dev, which is historical fiction. It was... And that's also been made available by HarperCollins out here. That was released some three years ago in India. And that is the story of a backward caste uh, Hindu king who fought a foreign invader. He put together an army of Hindus of all castes, of Indian Muslims, of Indian Buddhists, and fought a foreign invader and defeated him a thousand years ago. It's a deeply inspiring uh, story. And sadly, most people even in India hadn't heard of this story. And uh, Legend of Suhail Dev, I would strongly suggest that book as well. And that's an individual book. You can read just as that. Set a thousand years ago. And Lanka is part of a series. Lanka is part of a series. It's part of the Ramchandra series. But you can read Lanka just by itself as well. But yeah, but if you read the entire series, that will be that much more fun. Now, you were just saying that uh, sadly you're back in the suit because of your diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> Not sadly, my boss might hear this. <laughs> <laughs> but you're enjoying it. This, this new life works for you. You're not going to go back to the corporate world. No, I'm certainly not going back to the corporate world. And in this role, it will end. You know, it was supposed to end uh, in end of 2022. But someone was happy with my work. So they've given me a two year extension. So I'm here till end of 2024. But then I'm certainly leaving. And uh, this role is essentially, uh, you know, I'm part of the Indian High Commission. I'm Minister Culture and Education. So as Minister Culture, essentially, I'm director of the Nehru Center. And I speak of uh, and uh, my team and I, we essentially promote Indian culture across the UK. As Minister of Education, we look after all the educational issues. We have 120,000 students coming here every year, Indians. We have British universities who want to come to India. We have engagements between Indian universities, research engagements, etc., between Indian universities and British universities. So uh, my team uh, facilitates and manages that. That's my job out here. It's great fun. Uh, it's the first time I've worked with the government. I've got tons of inputs for a new story. <laughs> Working with the government is, it's, is, is a very different uh, experience mm. for a private sector guy. Yeah, I'm quite sure. And I'm, you'll notice I'm deliberately not asking you about politics. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could see you were trying to do that. <laughs> but, but I'm a diplomat. So. <laughs> yeah, no point. Amish, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Pleasure. That's Amish Tripathi, whose book War of Lanka is published by HarperCollins and it's out now. been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Monica Lillis. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app, from SoundCloud, Mixcloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. 
Thank you for listening.